And for our study this evening, we turn back to Hebrews chapter 12, where we'll try to um, continue with our um, studies. Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to read once again verses 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was a sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So this morning um, we were um, talking about the new covenant versus the old covenant. And in this passage the author is warning his readers not to return to Judaism, not to return to the Mosaic law. To turn away from Christ is dangerous. It is really, in principle, to be going back to Mount Sinai with its terrors, with its dread. And we saw this morning, by way of contrast, the first blessing under the new covenant. The writer says, but you are come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion conjures up images of favor, divine favor. It conjures up image of peace, of all that is beautiful, of all that is pleasant. And the writer says, under the new covenant, that's the kind of arrangement you have through Christ, our Redeemer. And this afternoon, we come to consider a second covenant blessing, a second new covenant blessing to which the recipients of this epistle are said to come. And it is what the writer describes as, verse 22, an innumerable company of angels in festal Gathering an innumerable company of angels in festal gathering. So, having mentioned the city of God, the writer now turns his attention to its citizens, its inhabitants. And unlike the gloom and terror of Mount Sinai to which ancient Israel had come and which they could not endure, the heavenly Jerusalem. The city of Zion, the city of the living God to which believers in Christ have come under the new covenant is a realm of joyous assembly and festivity. Unlike Mount Sinai, which is a place of condemnation, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, is a place of celebration. And of great significance is the fact that angels, the angels are rejoicing there in heaven in the city, the heavenly city of Zion. Why is this significant? Because oftentimes in scripture, angels evoke in humans feelings of trepidation. 
Angels are often associated with the execution of divine judgment. You'll find angels prominent in the book of Revelation in conjunction with the execution of God's wrath upon the earth. Many times in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, you'll find that when persons encountered angels, it was a time of great fear and dread. In fact, according to Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 2, when God appeared on Mount Sinai, he was accompanied, the word of God says, by ten thousands of angels with flaming fire in his right hand. And as we have seen this morning, that was a most dreadful event for the people of Israel. And here we see in this passage that it is to these very angels in heaven that believers in Christ have come. The beautiful thing is, we, there is coming a day when we are going to be in the company of angels. If we were to see an angel right now, an angel, as angels often manifested themselves in heaven, many of us, in fact, none of us really would have been able to endure that sight. According to the writer here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, for believers in Christ, the presence of angels in the heavenly realm to which they come presents not a scene of judgment, but a scene of great joy. Not a scene of fear, but a scene of festivity. And the question is, why would the angels be in festal gathering? Why would the angels be in such joyous celebration there in heaven? And no doubt they are in such celebratory frame because of the redeemed children of God. Because of the redeemed children of God. You remember our Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 15 verses 7 and 10. He said this, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, suggested there in verse 10, there's usually the big question, well, who is rejoicing in heaven? And some people right away say the angels. But if you look at one of those verses very carefully, at least in verse 10, suggested is that God rejoices before the angels. The triune God rejoices before the angels over the repentance of one sinner. The implication, of course, verse 7, is that angels also rejoice. Why do angels rejoice? They, because they have a vested interest in believers in Christ. In fact, go back to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 4, and the author tells us in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 4 that angels are ministering spirits who are sent forth to minister to those who are to inherit salvation. That is, you and I as believers in Christ. You know, there are those who have a misconception, and sometimes you hear it, Banded about, sometimes it's not said, but it's sort of implied that heaven has to be a boring place. People have the idea that when persons die, then they turn into angels and they're floating on the clouds. And what they're doing, they're strumming at harps and that's all they do all day long. And nothing is further from the truth. Here, my friends, we see clearly in our text that heaven is a place of joyful festivity. 
And it has to be a place of joyful festivity for the simple reason that the Lord Jesus, our Redeemer and Savior, is there. He is its light and its focus. You know, let me tell you this. You know this and you should know this. If you don't know this, you should know it. And it should be a matter of conviction. Here's the point. The greatest, let me say this, the greatest joy in heaven will not be the reunion with loved ones. As good as that is, let me say this, as good and as wonderful is the prospect of seeing our loved ones in heaven, that's not the greatest joy there will be in heaven. You know what's going to be the greatest joy in heaven? The greatest joy in heaven is going to see the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the Word of God says, He is the light of that city. He is the center of that city. And everywhere He goes, everywhere the Lamb goes, referring to the Lord Jesus, the redeemed follow Him. He is its light. He is its focus. The Lord Jesus is in relation to heaven, the, the Mount Zion, the heavenly city. And beloved, the wonderful reality is that those of us who are saved are going to join in that festivity, in that joyful festal gathering. Maybe I'm speaking to someone this afternoon, you are not saved, you have never come to Christ as Savior, you never call upon him to save you. Let me say this, the sad news is that you will be barred from all this. You'll be barred from all this. And, you know, there's, in fact, what's the alternative? The word of God says, outside the city, outside the kingdom of God, outside the presence of God, will be this weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's going to be awful. It's going to be dreadful. A third covenant blessing to which recipients of the epistle, and by extension, you and I have come, is the assembly of the firstborn. He says, you are come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. You have come to a great company of angels in festal gathering, but also you have come to the assembly of the firstborn. What is he talking about there? There's going to be a great gathering of all believers, all who are saved, all who have been redeemed from all of human history. The word that's used in the Greek for assembly is ekklesia, that's all also translated church. And the word church means gathering or assembly. That is why in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25, believers in Christ are encouraged not to forsake the assembling of themselves together as some are in the habit of doing. The point is this, the church is fundamentally the church is essentially the church in its gathered state, in its gathered setting. The Word of God knows nothing of Lone Ranger Christians. The Word of God knows nothing of one who is not attached to some local assembly. Somebody says, well, the church is in my heart. Here's the point. If we understand what the church is, certainly not every single person who constitutes the church of Jesus Christ is in your heart in a real sense. See, and it's very important we understand that we have it as a matter of conviction that in the word of God, church is very serious business. But located for the time being here on her earth, heaven, according to our passage, will be the destination of the church, the assembly of God's people. 
But what is the nature of this church? What is the nature of this church, the true church of the Lord Jesus, that's assembled in heaven? And here in verse 23, we learn at least two things about the church. First, it is described as the assembly of the firstborn. And the word firstborn, there is literally the plural in the Greek, it is firstborn ones. The term firstborn denotes privileged status. That's essentially what the word conveys. It is privileged status. For example, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, as well as Colossians 1, 15, the Lord Jesus is set forth as the firstborn. He is the firstborn not in the sense of having been the first to be born, but the firstborn in terms of preeminence. Well, preeminence in what? Preeminence over creation of which he is the agent, Colossians chapter 1, 15 and 16. Preeminence over the church, preeminence over death, indeed preeminence over everything, Colossians 1, 18, as well as Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. And the word of God also teaches that whereas Christ is preeminent of the firstborn, all believers in him, all believers in Christ become firstborn by adoption, having been born again by the Spirit of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. In this regard, here's what Romans 8.29 tells us. They were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now bearing in mind the status of firstborn ones, it means then that believers who constitute the true church have certain privileges. Because if you go back to the Old Testament, the idea of the firstborn, the firstborn had certain special rights as we saw when we were studying Esau. What would be the rights, what would be the privilege of every believer in Christ as a firstborn or, the, or us as believers collectively as firstborn ones? Well, they have the privilege or right of having become the children of God. They have the privilege of having become the children of God. John chapter 1 verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the power, the right to become children of God. Regarding believers in Christ as the firstborn ones, theirs is the privilege of being blessed with Christ, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Theirs is the privilege of coming into an inheritance. Romans 8, 17 puts it like this. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Those are the privileges or some of the privileges we have as members of the church, the assembly of the firstborn ones. And we could also say that among the special privileges which believers in Christ have as the church, the assembly of the firstborn, among those privileges would be the worship and service of God. There's a song we sometimes sing, let those refuse to sing who never knew our God, but children of the heavenly king may speak their joys abroad. Worship of the living God is the privilege and the right of the redeemed. That is why we often say this, as suggested by the word of God, that the unsaved person cannot truly worship God. 
Because God is spirit, those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And to begin with, the unsaved person the word of God teaches is what? Dead in trespasses and sins. And so here's how Peter puts a privilege that God's people, God's redeemed, God's church have. He says this, but you, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who call you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's a privilege you and I have as Christians. My friend, does it strike you? Does it grip you? The fact that you and I get to worship God, that worship is not some drab activity, that you and I get the privilege of worshiping the living almighty God of heaven who has condescended to make us his children, his redeemed. And I dare say this, that truth is, not many Christians understand that it's a privilege to worship the living God. Yes, we might know it, intellectually, but here's a point. Has it really gripped us that worship is a privilege? It is one of the privileges you and I have to declare God's praises in this world. Well, not only is the church described as the assembly of the firstborn, but secondly, the church is described, notice verse 23b, as being enrolled in heaven. The church is described as being enrolled in heaven. It is enrolled in heaven. And that is a very, very important distinguishing feature of believers of the church of Jesus Christ because here's the truth, the sobering truth, is that not every professing believer, not every professing church is enrolled or registered in heaven. There are churches today, my friend, that are churches in name only. There are Christians today who are Christians in name only. They do not belong to Jesus Christ. Paul in Philippians chapter 4 verse 3 spoke of those whose names are written in the book of life. Our Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 10 verse 20 said that his disciples should not be rejoicing in the power of their ministry, the fact that spirits are subject to them, he says, but rather rejoice in this, that your name is written in heaven. My friends, here's a very important question that it would do well, it would do us well to consider. And the question is, as a professing Christian, am I a Christian in actuality or in name only? Is my name merely written on some church roll here on earth or is beyond that, is my name written in the church role of heaven. Because here's the thing. One could be a member of a church. One could have allegiance to a local church. And yet, my friends, not be a part of the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was talking to someone the other day. And my son the other day, we were going through and we were talking about the, 
the church, at least how theologians talk about the church, and they talk about the visible church, that is what we can see. We see different local assemblies, that's the visible church. And then, of course, theologians talk about the mystical church, that is to say, um, the church that is invisible. And they talk about the church militant, the church as it is right now, going through suffering and all that. But here's the point. Let's cut to the chase. Here's the point. There is one true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is not just a local assembly. The ultimate expression of the church of Jesus Christ is the assembly in heaven. And the word of God is saying here that those who constitute that church their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and the Church of Jesus Christ is a church that is registered, that is enrolled in heaven. You know something? In some countries, the church is registered with the government. But let me say this. It's one thing to be registered with the government. It's another thing to be registered in the Book of Heaven. And that's what's most important at the end of the day. You see, one could be a member of this church or that church, and yet, sadly, as we said, not be a member of the one church that's enrolled in heaven. And here's another sobering truth. Not everyone's name is written in heaven. That's a sobering thought. Not everyone's name is written in heaven, but those who, in consequence of their faith in Christ, have been placed by the Spirit of God into the body of Christ. That's what the Word of God teaches, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. For by one Spirit were you all baptized into one body. He's not talking about water baptism. There he's talking about our being placed in the body of Christ by the Spirit of God. When does that happen? When one comes to Christ as Lord and Savior. My friends, if your name is not written in, the, in heaven, if you are not among the assembly of the firstborn, if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, then according to Jeremiah 17 and verse 13, having forsaken the Lord, having turned away from him, where is your name written? Jeremiah 17, 13, your name is written in the earth. That's what Jeremiah says. And in consequence of your name being written in the earth, if you are not saved, means then that you will come into eternal judgment. We read in Revelation 21 verse 27, it is only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life that will enter the new Jerusalem. And so the question is, are you among those who are enrolled in heaven? Is your name written in heaven? Here's a fourth covenant blessing to which address, uh, the, the addressees of the epistle and by extension, you and I as Christians have come. Verse 23, he says, you have come to the judge of all. You have come to the judge of all. And that God is judge means this, that the entire world will be accountable to him. Someday, he, being the judge of all the earth, will judge, the word of God teaches, the living and the dead at his coming. First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul said to young Timothy, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of the Lord Jesus, who will judge the dead 
the quick, the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. We are going to stand before the judge someday. That is a sobering thought. Because the word of God teaches that yes, the living as well as the dead of all ages, from all ages, will someday stand before him to give an account from which judgment some will go away into eternal punishment, others into eternal life, Matthew 25 and verse 46. Now listen, beloved, that God is a judge of all the earth, should serve, it should serve as a reminder to you and me. Those of us who are under the new covenant, that our deeds likewise will be judged by him. Let me say this by way of clarification. The, 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 the thought that we're going to stand before God in judgment as believers need not scare us. Because this judgment that we'll undergo before God, before the living God, someday as Christians, will not, it will not be a judgment to determine our place in heaven. That was already decided where? At the cross. And when we place our faith and trust in Christ, Christ died to remove the condemnation from us. Christ saves, Christ redeems. And 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, we will not be called in on the day of judgment. We will be brought blameless before him in the day of judgment. But here's the point. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that we might give an account of the things done in the body, whether good or bad. We are going to give an account to the judge. We are going to give an account to him for how we have dispensed our stewardship. And the word of God teaches, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, as we have just seen, that we're going to, yes, we're going to appear before him to give an account of how we, are li- how we live, how we have lived. But here's the truth. Even on this side, heaven, God judges his children by way of chastisement. We're saying this morning that if as a Christian you're just going along, going along and doing your own thing, sinning without batting an eyelid and you're living your life, doing your thing as a Christian, a professing Christian, and you never come under any kind of chastisement from God, then based on what the word of God teaches, you're illegitimate and you are not a child of his. That's what God's word says At this point, it's worth noting the descriptions the writer gives us of God, the God to whom believers in Christ have come. Notice, not only is he described here in verse 23 as the judge of all the earth, but back in verse 22, he is referred to as the living God. Outside of Jesus Christ, let me say this, outside of Jesus Christ, the imagery of God as judge evokes fear, and dread. And similarly, does the imagery of God as a living God, because, as in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 26, there are at least two times in Scripture when the expression the living God is not pleasant to the ear. 
Deuteronomy 5, verse 26, where Moses asked Israel, he says, For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and as still lived? Remember Mount Sinai, the, 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 the terror, the whole awesomeness of hearing the voice of the living God? Outside of Jesus Christ, outside of any kind of protection of his mediatorial ministry, his priestly ministry. Listen again to Hebrews 10 verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. But oh beloved, praise God, here in Hebrews chapter 12, as far as our text is concerned, for believers in Christ under the new covenant, the God to whom we come need not be approached with cowardly dread, with fearful dread. Yes, he's judge, but he has already judged our sins and will not give an account for them again. As far as determining our place in heaven is concerned, he's a God before whom we can come confidently, for his is a throne of mercy and grace. Before this God is a joyful, festive host of worshipers, angels, including the redeemed, and all of this possible through our Lord Jesus Christ. What glories we have, as we have been seeing this morning, under the new covenant. All because of our Lord Jesus. Angels which normally would have invoked terror, dread. Angels who conjure imagery, image of judgment. They are in joyful worship, joyful celebration. No doubt over the redeemed. The redeemed have come home. And we are going to be in that gathering. What a wonderful thing it is to know that having been redeemed, we are part of a great company. We are part of the assembly of the firstborn with special privileges, spiritual privileges. We get to come before God in worship, in freedom, without fear, and we can express our joy, our confidence in him. You are not saved. Never call upon him as your Lord and Savior. As we have said, your name is not in the Lamb's book of life. Oh, my friends, you need to run to him and be saved and have that change. May God bless these words to our hearts for his name's sake.